Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Today we have on our show former state assemblyman and former state senator Greg Ball. Greg represented the towns in our newspaper coverage area, Maypack, Somers, Yorktown, North Salem, and Cotona Loosborough for um, definitely some other surrounding towns. Uh, for a few years before I launched our first publication, Maypack News, in 2010 through 2014. I can't accurately recount the exact timeline, but it seemed as quickly as Greg dominated the local political scene, he left New York and went to Texas. The beauty of social media is that I've been able to follow Greg's life since leaving New York. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems you've gotten married, you have a son, you live on a farm, and you do you host polo tournaments. Can you elaborate on any of this? Yeah, it's been a tremendous journey after leaving the People's Republic of, of New York State. Uh, <laughs> I have been coming to the state of Texas since I was 12 years old, and it's, it's a place that I have always loved, and it was my happy place. The Texas Hill Country is just beyond gorgeous, but in the past five years, I've uh, continued the, the polo matches, which I've done now for nearly 20 years. We're coming upon the 20-year anniversary, and I used to do them. I played polo in my 20s, and I, I was a, a scholarship kid at a boarding school, and if I cleaned up the horseshit, they allowed me to play polo in return. So I cleaned up a lot of horseshit. I fell in love with polo. And uh, then I started throwing matches. And I brought it from Philadelphia to DC. And then we went to Greenwich. And then, of course, in New York. And then went from one event a year to three events a year to, at one point prior to COVID, we were doing about 14 polo matches. And it was this you know, traveling roadshow for upperly mobile preppy people throughout the United States. And it became the... the best attended polo match in America. I mean, I think the year before COVID or, or right during, we had about 125,000 guests. So it, it, I was doing that, but I was is also- this a, Is this a charity tournament or- Totally, okay. totally for profit. I mean, okay. last year alone, we gave over $400,000 in free passes to vets through an organization called VetTix. And then we did fundraising for, for Purple Heart Homes, but this is a, a for-profit venture. And then- <laughs> So I was doing that and then opened up a, a brick and mortar location in, uh, in Fredericksburg in the heart of the Texas Hill Country as a, as a bar. And then that did very well. And then opened, uh, purchased an old dance hall in Ghost Town, actually, called Bankersmith. And that's been doing great. That's a, a bar restaurant now. It's a, a big dance hall. We do events every weekend. And then I just opened up a seafood restaurant called Martini's, which is doing phenomenal. And we just broke ground on a new winery on an 85 acre property that I, that I bought. And I'll say none of this would have been possible in the state of New York. That's the sad reality. And I started with nothing. You know, I came here, people probably wouldn't believe it, but I mean, I was probably $300,000 in debt and got in my truck with my dog and there, you know, five boxes and a couple of shotguns and drove to Texas and had no clue, you know, really what I was going to do. And where I am today, it's and it's been you know huge sacrifice and tons of work, and we're not out of the the woods yet because I continue to push and grow and push and grow as as you know. 
I think every entrepreneur feels that way. They're never out of the woods because they're always trying to push and grow. Exactly. And I, I appreciate, you know, what you, you know, looking back now when I, when I was in politics, you know, I was pro-business and all the key words you have to say, but it's amazing how little most politicians know. And um, I look at what you accomplished at a young age and push, and I have so much more respect now for small business owners and what they put up with every day, especially well, there. I appreciate that. And I, I just if you can elaborate, you know, why in New York, you wouldn't have been able to do that versus Texas. I think that, and you're a testament to it, that uh, highly driven, successful people are going to push forward no matter what. But there are so many damn walls and regulations and fees. You know, when I would give a a small example of the difference between the state of Texas and and New York, like even when I was in politics, I was coming to Texas quite regularly. And I would fly back from Texas to New York. And of course, as a state senator, you're interacting with all sorts of people, whether it be the taxi cab driver or whether it be a billionaire. And no matter whether it was the taxi cab driver or the billionaire or anybody in between, everybody was a hamster in a wheel. You're just rolling that plastic bubble as hard as you effing can to raise kids, to keep the house, to pay the bills, to pay the... You never own your own home. You know, you're paying ten dollars to $30,000 in property taxes. That's a mortgage payment. So the government owns your home, even when you own, quote unquote, your leasing. From the government. And I think about now when I look at you know my businesses, we're dealing with crazy, we have the seafood house in particular, but all of them, beef prices are up, lobster prices are up, fish prices, there's all sorts of, of reasons for it, but inflation's through the roof. So what do I need to do? I need to increase my prices on the menu. If I don't increase my prices on the menu, I go out of business. I have probably a 52, 54, $60,000 payroll every two weeks. I take care of Dozens and dozens and dozens of families. If I go out of business and everybody sees see small business owners, they see the success. There were months during COVID I didn't pay myself. I was working in a food truck, but I made I never missed a payroll. And what voters I think don't necessarily get are people that have not been in small business. And many people in the state legislature or in the US Congress or in the White House, in, including currently, don't get is that the small business owner, the business owner have to pass those costs on. So if you have a high regulation, high tax environment on the quote unquote rich, on the job creators, they have to pass those costs on. That's why it's so expensive for commercial property in Westchester County. That's why it's so expensive. For, it's not just because it's pretty. It's because of all the regulations and all the taxes that have to get passed on. That's why it is unaffordable to live in Manhattan. It's not because the island did it. It's not because the trees in Central Park did it. It's because the high-tax, high-regulation, anti-business environment, those costs have to be passed down. And you create a world where you only allow the very rich and the very poor. That's what we saw happen in New York City over the past generations. And I saw it coming with the loss of power in the state Senate. But even beyond, I, I saw the shift in the state assembly when I was there. I saw it in the state Senate. And sadly, the things that I knew that were coming to New York have come to fruition. I think about campaigns where I talked about all the top hot button issues. And I said, look, if we lose the state Senate seat, this stuff is going to happen immediately in New York State. And it did. It happened within three months. Going back to Texas, I, I assume the business environment is a lot easier and, and um, property taxes are lower. And uh, you know, it's a little bit easier to operate as a family and as a business owner. 
this past legislature and beyond, they've actually gone in to remove regulations. They've gone in to turn back taxes. There's no income tax. And beyond that... That's incredible. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But beyond that, you know, the, the regulatory environment is much less. Now, as you go into different cities, if you're in Austin or if you're in Dallas or if you're in, you know, you're in Houston, what you see is you see creep and you see these increasing costs. But in most environments, the regulatory environment is much less. And, you know, it doesn't mean that there's not a, a need, you know, in the, in the state of Texas, one of the big issues we have, we right now in this town, surrounding areas, we have nearly 60 vineyards. This is the number two wine destination wow. in the country. It's been growing by leaps and bounds. And you don't think about Texas as, as a place for, a place for, for wine. For wine. So that's interesting. You know, the town that I do business in here, we get anywhere between ten to 30,000 tourists a weekend. And a lot of them are Texans coming in from when we host, I do over 40 events a year now. And we have, oh, we have anywhere between 500 to 7,000 attendees that will come in on a, on a Sunday. And most of them, we're four hours from Houston, but most of them are coming from Houston, Dallas, Austin, San Antonio. It was a day trip. But you know, big issue is is water in Texas for future development. When I think about you know needed regulations from environmental side, you know when it rains here, it pours, and a lot of that water goes in the rivers and then it ends up into the Gulf of Mexico. So one, and it may sound liberal, but one thing that's probably needed here is is every development that comes in, they need to collect the water through rainwater you know retention systems. That's the type of thing that it's a regulation. It's it's an increased cost, but there's there's a need to have smarter growth. But some of the stuff that has happened in, in New York, when I look at, because I still get the real estate you know, updates for commercial space and, and Mayapak and elsewhere. I mean, it's insane, the comparison per square foot. We have tons of foot traffic. We have tons of tourists coming in every weekend. And you have to pay more for an ice cream shop in Mayapak hmm. than you do here in Fredericksburg. And the, com- the commercial market here is so much better you know, if you're paying ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a month, how many damn hamburgers do you have to sell? Yeah, yeah. Just to pay your nut. Yeah, absolutely. I, I know in, in Texas it was a big deal about the power failures. I forget when it was exactly. You know, what are your thoughts on that? It was in February. You know, I have basically turned off my TV for five years. Uh, mm. I know there was, you know, the liberals try to blame the conservatives, and the conservatives try to blame the, the liberals. I can tell you that. I think it was during February because we had a massive event. We were supposed to have a massive event. We had to cancel it. <clears throat> we're just not built for that kind of weather and the sustained freezing. So even the houses here, whatnot, they don't have the insulation. The pipes aren't insulated. So whereas in New York, you're ready for it. You have the equipment, the roads, the salt, the gravel. We we just don't have it. So it, and on out on the farm, it was devastating for the animals. Just to, you know, working every day just to to keep them alive. Uh, and, and tell me about your farm. I mean. So, so obviously a working farm, what kind of farm, what do you raise? So we're doing a, um, I have, I have zebras, I have camels and all that, buffalo and all that stuff as pets. But we also are building out a creamery and a dairy to do fresh goat cheese and then planting a winery, local winery, best of Texas type fresh cheese. And the winery overlooks, Texas Hill Country is beautiful, but then it also overlooks the polo field that we just built. So we do, we'll be doing polo on Friday, Saturdays, and it's, it's probably a 15 or 20 year project. It's a beautiful property, but there's a lot of work ahead. That's great. Time and money. When the COVID pandemic hit, you were outspoken about our country's reaction to it. I would love to hear your current thoughts. Have we gotten this right as a country and as a society? It was sickening to watch here in Texas, 
And as I said, I've been coming to Texas since I was 12 years old. And I've always been very proud of Texas. But to walk into your local feed store and to see 50-year-old healthy men that you know look like they had a Marine Corps sticker on their truck and they walk in wearing a mask, it was sickening to me. And it also made me realize how powerful fear is in politics. And I think being retrospective, I look back on issues that I may have used or, or not used or been involved in or not been involved in. And you, I now realize how powerful fear is. And I can tell you that I never understood how a country could have neighbors turn to neighbors and put you know, their neighbors and their friends on cars and send them to their death. But I, I know how now. And as a Texan, watching fellow Texans turn on Andrew Cuomo, because that was the national news, right? He was on TV every day and listening to him as their governor. And then watching this governor, who was supposed to be a conservative, capitulate and to follow New York City-driven politics, which is exactly what he did, was extremely disheartening. I mean, there's been no logic to any of this. If any of this was logical or any of this was truly scientifically driven, I would still disagree with what was done because I believe that you can treat people like adults. You can treat small business owners like adults. You can treat superintendents of schools like adults. You can... Government should trust the people. The people should not trust the government. And the people were completely capable of instituting best practices throughout this without running a nanny state and dividing the country into essential and non-essential. It was completely illogical. And And, and arbitrary. Absolutely arbitrary. And pick winners and losers. You had conservative governors that said that churches were essential. And then you had liberal governors that said that churches were not essential. You know, I mean, the, the fact that the Catholic church that's been through everything, including the bubonic plague, decided to take it up the ass and to shut down their churches at a time when people needed to be in church the most was disgusting to me. I have priests who are personal friends, dear friends. And I can tell you, had I still been in politics in New York State, I don't know what would have happened because it, it, I, I certainly would not have allowed the echo chamber to just go in, in one direction up there. It was sickening to watch supposedly conservative representatives and elected officials up there just follow through. And if you want to, the best example is the restaurant example on, on the logic side. So you can, when they actually allow you to go into the restaurant, you have to wear your mask. So you have to wear your mask into the restaurant. But once you sit down and begin to eat, well, then you don't have to wear your mask because when you're eating, you can't get COVID. But because there's no COVID at the table level. And as soon as you get up to go to the bathroom, well, you have to put your mask back on because there's COVID at that space. And when you take a piss, you can get COVID. Apparently there's no COVID at Target, but there are, you know, there's COVID in small retail stores. Right. But there's, there's no, no COVID at liquor stores. There's no COVID in uh, the drive-in line at Starbucks. You know, a multinational, some would say anti-American from the top corporation, but you have to shut down your local mom and pop restaurant that's sending two kids to college and employs 20 people in the local community. There's no COVID at Walmart, so they're going gangbusters, but there's COVID in their local church. So it's all bullshit and people got hurt. There are businesses that will never reopen. I think there's some good stuff that came out of it, but that doesn't negate how disgusting. And if you look at somebody like Andrew Cuomo, who is absolutely organically driven by power and how much he got off during this entire thing, 
because deep down, these people, they want to be, they're tyrannical by nature. They want exert power in every instance. And it showed how willing the American people, including in the great state of Texas, how willing people are to give up their liberty. And how do you get it back? And they're, they're ready to do it. It became a lifestyle. And the amount of money under Trump and now that has been spent just letting to tell people just to sit at home. And yes, those dollars were spent and they saved many small businesses. They, there was good, they came, but it was unnecessary. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. You could have allowed businesses to do what they do best, which is they could have been the front line of defense to protect their customers, protect their employees. And what we have seen, again, back on the numbers and, and following logic, the states that enacted these strictest standards saw the greatest spikes. When the governor here in the state of Texas finally ended the mask mandate, the numbers dropped. Right. So now you're seeing it. And now, you know, they're trying to put it around DeSantis's neck in, in Florida and elsewhere where all this, those states are going up. Well, all the states look like they're going up again. You know, I think one of the problems with politicians is that you want to believe that you can pass a bill or that you can make a change and you're all powerful. And, you know, some of this stuff, whether it be herd immunity or this is going to run its course. Yeah. It's going to run its course. And, you know, you had Fauci and others that say in, in the beginning, well, a mask doesn't, it's not going to protect you against us. And if you, if you just Google the, the size of this coronavirus and Google the size of the mesh on most of these masks, it's like using a wire fence to keep bees out. I mean, it doesn't make any goddamn sense. In New York, we've been having debates at many of our school board meetings about critical race theory. It seems we have one side advocating diversity, equity, and inclusion and denying that has anything to do with critical race theory. And then we also hear, well, you know, what is so wrong about teaching about our racist past? And then opponents of critical race theory say that the theory itself is racist and the practice of equity as opposed to equality, the practice of equity is Marxism. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I'm nothing if I'm not a patriot. I love this country. I certainly saw how divided we were becoming when I was in politics. I saw it before that. I mean, you know that I'm a conservative, but I remember watching President Bill Clinton, you know, they tried to throw him out of office, but get impeached for lying about getting a blowjob. They went after him. They said that Hillary and he killed multiple people. They went after them for accepting illegal dollars from China. They went after the Rose Law Firm. There's nothing that they did not. They said that they killed Vince Foster. I mean, there's nothing that these people didn't say that Bill Clinton didn't do. And in the end, after spending millions and millions and millions of dollars they got him on lying about getting a blowjob. And I remember saying, okay, Republicans, this is going to come to you one day. And you know what the difference? Republicans don't have the balls. They're not as nasty as the left. And now it's come to four. You know, you, you reap what you sow in life. The chickens come home to roost. And the division that we now are, and social media has played into that. We went from maybe a week-long news cycle on print, right, years ago, to one day. It's 30 seconds now, if that. It's less. And then you have gerrymandered districts. So you either have extreme right primaries or extreme left primaries. And we have a deeply divided country. But it was bad in the 90s. It was bad in the 2000s. It was bad when I was in politics. But the division that we have now, either by partisanship or by race, is disgusting. You know, some of the most racist people I've met in my life have been Black. And I've met racist people in my life that are white. This country had systemic racism. There's no doubt there's racism in this country, but can we admit that it's on both sides? 
two years ago, I think it started popping up that you had young black men going and, and punching Hasidic Jews on the side of the head or Asians getting attacked. Why doesn't anybody talk about that? Have we ever talked about the systemic racism and, and prejudice against the Hasidic Jewish community or the Jewish community, American Jewish community in, in, overall? Anti-Asian bias. So Black Lives Matter, but nobody else does. Black Lives Matter, but we're going to fund Planned Parenthood and kill, what is it now, one out of every three, one out of every two young Black babies? Can we have an honest conversation about it? No, and, I mean, unfortunately, we, it's difficult to have an honest conversation about all of this. Absolutely. It's horrible. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. You know, we've had examples where you have drug people that are high that have nearly killed their girlfriends or wives and they have been restrained by cops and a tragedy happened. And these people that have rap sheets that are longer than, you know, three feet high that are abusers, that are murderers, that are horrible human beings, you have members of Congress sitting on their knees deitizing them and turning them into martyrs. What does that say to a young black child who's trying to get good grades and who wants to be somebody one day? Does it give them the example of let's do the right thing? And all this, what you see happening in in New York City, who's the real loser? Is it the white family or the upperly mobile black family or of any color that had the money to leave New York City and they're now in Saratoga? Or is it going to hurt that young single mom living in the inner city who's trying to raise her kids the right way. And when she calls, the cops don't respond. Why should they? Could you imagine being an honest cop today? Or could you imagine being a young, single African-American mom with a couple of kids in the inner city trying to raise them the right way? So this is all going to come full circle. It's all going to come full circle where those the, the true victims will stand up and say, enough is enough. I when I call, I want the cop here. And you know what? Yes, I want them to lock that son of a bitch up. And it's going to be the young African-American moms, going to be the, the, the single moms in the minority communities in the inner city who are going to scream the loudest about needing law and order. And that's the sad thing. Because how many rich people have left New York City? They ain't going back. Why would you live in that shithole? And, you know, There's no honest conversation about race in America. There's no honest conversation about class in America. It's a very disheartening thing. We're a deeply divided country. And if you're on the left, everybody else has to accept your version of the truth. And if you do not accept their version of the truth, you're a racist, you're a liar. Pick the word. If you're a conservative, if you're a Christian, if if you're a patriot, if you support law enforcement, you're deemed, pick the word. And that's disgusting. And imagine being a young man, young woman, and a conservative or a Christian and going through school and going through college and standing up for what you believe in. Everything that we used to view as wrong has been deemed right. And everything that we used to view as right has now been deemed wrong. And you're entitled to your opinions unless you're conservative, unless you're a patriot, unless you're pro-law enforcement. This concept that the worst thing facing the young black male community as a racist white cop is a fucking sales job and a farce. How about drugs? How about crime itself? How about black on black crime? How about not even getting out of the womb without being aborted? How about not proper access to opportunity, education? Go through the list of items that are affecting the young black males in America. A white racist cop is the least of their issues and can be dealt with and will be dealt with very swiftly. 
there's a reason why I got out of politics and it, it's the best decision I ever, I ever made. But politics needs good people in there. I have been sickened to see where this country has, has gone and how deeply it's divided. And it's on, it's on both sides. It definitely, we have become an either, either extreme right or extreme left country. There was a time when people used to work together, you know, going back to President Bill Clinton. I mean, there, there was a time where bipartisan, I remember I lived on Capitol Hill at that time as a young Air Force lieutenant. And whether you're in Capitol Lounge or Hawk and Dove or Politiki or, you know, any of the old bars up there, staffers on the right and staffers on the left would, would get together. But there was a sense, everybody loved America. And then even, you know, with, with uh, George Bush, I mean, you think about the patriotism after 9-11. That was a, a horrible, horrific moment. And you think that this is 20 years ago. I mean, I feel so old. If you talk about a defining moment in our lives, it's 9-11. I'll never forget, I think it was Tom Daschle and George Bush were hugging one another after it. So, you know, it was something wonderful to see. I mean, the, the, the unity we saw in our country, without a doubt. Yeah, we had that for years. You know, if you look at Cuomo today and you look at, from my core, I know how I have been, whether in public life or something, I truly do not take any happiness from other people's misery. You know, looking back in the past, you know, Senator Vincent Libell and I, Vinny, I mean, he and I went head to head. And um, there are a few men that brought more misery to my life than, than that man. But he was also a very good man and did a lot of really great work and was a great public servant in a lot of ways. But, you know, good people can do bad things and, and bad people can do good things. When he fell, I never took any pleasure in his downfall. You know, and I, I think about him often. I, I truly do. And with Cuomo, I'd say that, he, you know, as far as enemies and, and in my view, he's just a bad, bad man. And I, you know, I had the unfortunate opportunity of dealing with him directly. That said, I do not take any pleasure in, in his downfall. And I think that even in his twisted brain, if you look at his face, you can, you can see the pain on his face. But you, know, you live by the sword and you die by the sword. And if you talk about somebody who is now a taste of their own medicine is, is really too weak, weak of a word. But he is really the, the personification of how this, the division and the divisiveness has now reached a point where, I mean, politics is just dripping in toxicity today. And it's not, it's not good enough to take somebody down. It's not good enough to beat somebody in an election. They want you dead. Mm. They want you in jail. I mean, look at what they're, look at they're going after the Trump Foundation. and They're going after his sons and they're going after his family and the yeah, the attorney general of the state of New York going after his business dealing. It's not enough that you lose an election. They need to put you in jail or have you dead, whether, whether it be the right or the left. That's, that's where we are today. I definitely think it's alarming to see that politics has been criminalized in a sense. People go after you depending on your politics. I mean, that is definitely scary. I mean, we definitely, our country needs to have equal justice. And it's, it's, it's scary to see that, that it's, People go after one another because of an R or a D next to their name. And actually, I want to point out one other thing because you were talking about, you know, we're talking about race and, and COVID. I, I actually believe that the, the biggest victims of our COVID policies actually have been working class people. Um, I have someone, close family member who is a single mom who she's a phlebotomist. She couldn't Zoom for her work. She had to go into the hospital she was working at. And meanwhile, she has two, two little kids I think one is six now, one's eight. Not sure the exact ages. 
And um, a couple of times she had to leave them home alone. And I, I felt terrible for her, you know, but she had to leave them home alone because the school shut down and she had to make a living. So um, without a doubt, the biggest victims were people in the working class uh, status there. So I wanted to know if you can um, give me, I guess, your thoughts on, and especially because Texas is sort of the, the front line of this illegal immigration. I know that, you know, that, that was sort of a big topic when you, when you had run for office in New York, you had a large concern about illegal immigration. You know, right now, I know the governor of Texas is really kind of trying to battle that himself. Um, there's a little bit of a now, uh, I guess, a legal dispute between the federal government and Texas. I'd just love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I think, number one, from a high level, when you look at the federal government and Governor Abbott, you know, suing each other, this is all political theater. It plays itself out on the news and who does it help both parties? I mean, they're placating, they're playing to their base. The cool thing about our founding fathers, and this is a totally separate subject, but if you think about the genius, you know, ambition must be made to counter ambition. You think about just how our government's set up, the government that now everybody wants to tear apart because, you know, we're a horrible, racist country. You know, you had Abbott last year running the state like Andrew Cuomo. I mean, I can tell you stories of the, the Texas Alcohol and Beverage Commission coming through our doors. My wife was bartending. I was in the food truck and we have state police come through our door like two weeks before we were running illegal business. And all of a sudden you would have thought we were running a meth lab. This is from a conservative governor, but now he has a primary. So now he's going to the right, you know I mean? And that, that system itself, those checks and balances, but that's, that's a separate topic. But we were supposed to do, a, we do a polo match every year down in Macau, which is right on the border. And we're going to have to cancel it. I'm pretty sure, you know, I'm not in politics anymore, so I don't, I don't check every I and, and T, but I'm pretty sure that the mayor of Macau in Texas is a, is a Democrat. And we just two days ago got a note that the local government down there issued a declaration of disaster because the federal government allowed something like 1,500 illegal aliens, many of whom had tested positive for COVID, let them into the McAllen community. And their rates are, and you talk about COVID disproportionately hurting the working class or Hispanic or African-American community. I mean, the Valley, that whole area down there along the border experienced some of the worst repercussions from COVID. So there's a democratic government that is crying foul for what our democratic federal government is doing. And that's again, where, you know, politics should be about compromise. It should be about common sense. But if you have a federal liberal government that all they care about is overturning Trump policies, so it plays well on MSNBC, they're going to do stupid shit. And stupid shit is allowing 15, forget illegal aliens, 1,500 illegal aliens, many that have COVID. I mean, that is fucking, I'm sorry, but that's fucking stupid. Whether you're a liberal, an ultra-liberal, I mean, it's just dumb. And regular people can see through this shit. But they're so focused on, well, we have to end Trump policies, and that's all they care about because they want to see how it plays out on the national news. As far as you know, my stance on illegal immigration, people bastardize my position. And I'm proud that when I look back and see, I was very clear that illegal aliens themselves were being used as indentured servants. You had the Republican Party that wanted cheap labor. You had Democrats that knew they'd, they'd have future votes. The liberals are always better at playing the long game, unfortunately. And, and look at what has happened. Look at this past election. Look at Although I, I think ironically, I mean, there's some false assumptions in the media and among politicians that all Hispanics, you know, vote Democrat or all Hispanics are, are for illegal immigration. And that, that's a false notion. And I know there's towns on the border 
that are majority Hispanic who voted for Trump. It's a very good point. It's something that probably New York really get about Texas either, among many other things. There's a lot of things that Texas don't get about New York, which is most. There's a lot that New York doesn't get about Texas, which is most. But Texas has always had a strong, conservative, Hispanic community, you know, members of the Chamber of Commerce, members of the local Catholic Church, you know, very strong, conservative families going back generations. That said, what I've come to learn about the Democratic Party is that they need everybody to be a victim. So if you're a conservative Hispanic who's a stellar member of your community, bedrock in your community, that doesn't fit their narrative or their need. They need you to be a victim. So they need you to come here illegally. Because if you come here illegally, you have to hide in the shadows. You have to hide in the shadows. You'll appreciate when they give you the driver's license. Then you'll appreciate when they allow you to get on welfare. And then you'll appreciate it when they allow you to go to the hospital for free. And then they'll appreciate it when your kids are able to go to school for free. They'll, so they, they need you to be, a, and oh no, don't, op, don't open up a pathway to citizenship that allows them, don't, don't do a compromise agreement that allows them to become citizens. Because then once they're legal and they start to become awkwardly mobile and they don't have to live under your thumb anymore, oh, we don't want that. So let's just let that issue be bastardized and, and let's fight about that for, but now it's like 40 fucking years since Reagan, what is it, 30 years since Reagan? 40 fucking years since comprehensive immigration reform. Anything yeah. sensible coming through to allow people a pathway to citizenship. So the Democrats need to make sure that you have this indentured serving class. And that is for everything. That is their playbook. Whether it be African-Americans, do you, is it the, the young black male who is fighting to get A's in school and wants to be a small note, let's call him an Uncle Tom. Let's isolate him. Let's make him the weirdo. You're not, you're not being respectful to your, your race. You're trying to be white. Or even, even with veterans. If you look at, you know, as the former chairman of Homeland Security and on, and on Veterans Affairs, we would have hearings on the issues affecting, you know, my beloved veteran community. Democrats weren't even comfortable being involved unless they could talk about PTSD or other issues that turn veterans. They didn't want to talk about the successes of the veterans community. They wanted to talk about sexual assaults in the military. They wanted to talk about PTSD. They wanted to talk about homelessness. These are issues that have to be talked about, but the Democrats have to put you in a box as a victim, no matter what class you're in, to then be able to get their hooks into you. And from a communication perspective, to talk about the greatness of this country and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and working your ass off like you have, like I have, like our parents have, like you know, many, many others have before us, that's not sexy anymore. Everybody has to be, be a victim. I would say actually among the biggest victims of what you're talking about are people who don't fall into that Democrat stereotype with, um, you know, some on the national scene, Clarence Thomas, you know, in the media, Candace Owens, you know, really, um, I love listening to Candace Owens. I mean, she's brilliant. Her book that I guess some, some publishers association apologized for promoting their, her book and said, you know, called her book racist, you know, and her book was about her childhood. So, I mean, you know, this, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. Just wanted to, I mean, we can wrap this up uh, soon. I just wanted to know, um, a, I mean, guys, why did you leave New York politics? And do you have any plans on returning? Or is Texas your permanent home? And just in general, do you have a future in politics or are you done? Well, okay, so why did I leave? You know, for me, there's parts of politics that I've lived a life of passions where I follow, I do follow my passion and my dream. And there was a 
good part of my early life where that was exactly what I wanted to do. And you know, I had seven elections in eight years, as you know. I mean, they were bruising elections. I was always victorious. I never, I never lost. And I'm proud of that, but it was, you know, you're raising millions and millions and millions of dollars every couple of years. And I also did the job seven days a week. Whether people liked me, they hated me, I was never called lazy and I was never called stupid. I was called a lot of other things. And I gave everything that I had to the job and to my community. But in the middle of it, you know, I remember one old state assemblyman, he said, Greg, just make sure you never believe your own press releases. You know, don't start believing your own press releases. And I thought that was really good advice. I would sit in that Senate seat and, and it's a beautiful chamber. It was never lost on me, the tremendous responsibility and privilege it was. But I would sit there and I was making $79,500 a year. I was living in a 400 square foot shack in Putnam Lake. When I bought it, it didn't even have a... Uh, it didn't even have a working toilet. The septic was an old uh, garbage can that had chicken wire over it. And you know, I'd pick up the paper or read online every day how I was a horrible piece of shit for 10 years. It was two years before eight, you know? And I was a former Air Force officer, Air Force Academy graduate. Was I perfect? No. But I'm a, I am and I was a good person. And I would read every day how I was just a horrible piece of shit. And I think, you know, after a while, if you're a good person, I'm not talking the Cuomo types in the world, but if you're truly a good introspective person, like, eh, maybe they got a point. Why the fuck am I doing this? So as opposed to believing my own press releases, I got to put like, so for $79,500 a year, you know, I'm broke. It's like $300,000 in debt. And I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? Um, I, and I got screwed in redistricting by my own party and, and others. They, you know, my district was supposed to be pushed up into Dutchess County, Eastern Dutchess County, which is where my family's from. And they pushed it down into Westchester County and picking up towns like, you know, we had Chappaqua and down in um, Mount Pleasant, Rob Astorino's area. In fact, I remember them telling me at, at the redistricting table, like, oh, Mount Pleasant's going to be your new uh, Dutchess County. Well, I was winning towns in Dutchess County by 70%. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm a Second Amendment, pro-life, anti-illegal immigration, solid conservative. I'm not wearing a damn polo shirt like Rob Astorino and going down to Chappaqua and, and to Mount Pleasant and winning it by 70%. I don't want to do it. Yeah. yeah. But I did one more during the Obama, I think it was Obama's reelect. I said, I'll do it. I'm not a quitter, so I'll do it one more time. But I knew two years in advance I wasn't going to run again. Had redistricting been different and had I gotten that district, would I still be in? I don't know. I probably would have stayed a little bit longer. But I saw what was happening. I, I knew that also that we were going to lose the majority. And going from a majority state center to being in the minority is just, you know, it's, it's a difference between being able to actually get shit done and then and being lower than whale shit. So there's a lot that went into it. And, you know, on the business side, I love what I do. I didn't know whether I could do it. There was no way of knowing. I remember one of, one of the state senators when I was leaving, he's like, are you really going to leave? What the hell are you going to do? They're like, what else can... And I think there are a lot of people in politics that they really can't do much else. Well, politics, you get paid to just talk shit all day. I mean, they, they just, they go on the news shows, they do the local interviews, and they, be, they become these caricatures of themselves where they know exactly what they have to say. They know exactly who they have to placate. If you ask them to sell hot dogs, not sell a fucking hot dog, you know? Oh, give it away. Nachos, free for everybody. <laughs> yeah. They don't have skill sets other than other than re-election. So I didn't know, but I, it turns out I'm pretty damn good at it. 
Am I going to be worth a billion dollars one day? No, probably not, but I, I'm doing well, God will. It, it will continue. So I, I love what I'm doing. I do not ever, ever, ever see a time I would ever get back into politics. I've learned to never say never, but I don't, I'm not that guy who wakes up and, and I miss it. You know, hmm. I left it all in the field and I'm leaving it all in the field in a different space. And you now we'll see what happens. Greg, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope at some point as new issues arise, I'd love to have you back at some point. That'd be great. All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye.